Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. This is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seagraves, United States Marine Corps, and with me I have Major Dustin Morgan. And we are now starting uh, our third part of the United States versus Hassan calf chats. We just recommend uh, that you go back to episode one if you haven't listened to the other two. We gave a brief overview of the overarching facts of the case. Uh, And then in the first two episodes, we addressed uh, one, the differences between a capital case and a regular court martial. And then we started taking the assignments of error in turn. Right now we're about to start Part three, with uh, assignment of error seven. Specifically, uh, this assignment of error or issue deals with whether the continued forcible shaving of the appellant is punishment in excess of the sentence he received as court-martial and violated Article 55 and the Eighth Amendment. Now, Article 55 and the Eighth Amendment deal with cruel and unusual punishment. You talk a little bit about the facts necessary for this issue, Dustin. Sure, yes, sir. So as um, the CAF identifies uh, at the beginning, so they, they quote, call me on a devout Muslim who earnestly believes that wearing of a beard is an important tenet of his faith. So as part of his brief to CAF, um, appellant Major Hassan asserts that in his briefs he was forcibly shaven before and after trial and that he was punished by personnel at the U.S. disciplinary barracks for defying orders to shave. So not only was he forcibly shaving, he was also having privileges taken away. Um, he wasn't able to earn excess yard time, commissary benefits, things like that. Um, and accordingly, he argues he's being punished in a cruel and unusual manner under the Eighth Amendment. Now, some of the other issues here was that, you know, he, he asked that he be allowed to have a beard. Uh, he also made a petition under RIFRA, uh, again, for an exception to policy as well. Thing is interesting there they had one of the chaplains uh, interview him and the chaplain in his report said although there's no religious law requiring Muslims to, men to wear beards many Muslim men regard it as an important religious practice and that this stems from appellant's genuine and religious belief and personal understanding of his faith I guess we probably deal with RIFRA right away um, does that have any bearing here so RIFRA the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act is is, is kind of a civil remedy so the, the CAF dispenses with that issue pretty quickly, and they say, we do not have jurisdiction to hear a RIFRA claim. So that issue is dispensed with kind of right off the top, and they just don't hear anything about that at all. All right, now going back to the Article 55 and Eighth Amendment issues, um, the appellant has some issues, some problems here with, with proof. Right, it's just like United States versus polling. So I know that you and Major Barrett talked about that case a few months ago. Um, and if you listen to that one, you know that as Major Barrett told you, it's really important to build a record when it comes to cruel and unusual punishment type issues. And so here, appellant just 
didn't do that. So Major Hassan didn't show through the record that he was being forcibly shaved. He didn't show that he was being punished. He didn't show any of these adverse consequences that he claims were happening to him. Because of that, the CAF is like, we, we really can't hear this claim and really can't develop it any further because we have no evidence or record before us that establishes this. So like we talked about in USV pullings, uh, this type of claim or evidence would have been great for those clemency matters that you provide to the convening authority. Right. It would have been the perfect area for him to raise it. Um, he had been in prison for a while already um, when this started happening and when his post-trial matters were due. So that would have been the absolute perfect time to raise it, and it would have built a record for him. And it's not as if he didn't give anything to the Canadian authority uh, as far as clemency matters. Uh, he, in fact, he gave a 450-page handwritten right, entry. He, Pardon me. Yeah. So he, he did submit post-trial matters, as we'll talk about in one of the further developed issues. Um, and, and as you said, sir, they were 450 pages and handwritten, so they're quite extensive. And he did talk about a bunch of different issues. He just did not mention it at that time. So accordingly, the CAF offers him no relief here. Going back to USB pullings and this issue for the fleet and field, the important thing is build the record. Build a record, for sure. Um, if you have this type of issue coming up in your defense counsel, you need to make sure it's referenced. Very well. So we'll now move to issue number eight. Whether the appellant was deprived of his right to counsel during post-trial, pardon me, during post-trial processing. So here, someone like the first issue we talked about, uh, he, he originally had an attorney signed to him, uh, and then he decided to go it alone. Right, so during post-trial, um, the record took a long time to build here. So it took several years um, because of how extensive it was and all the intricacies involved in it. So in the time that he was convicted and sentenced to death, there was post-trial Article 39A sessions, so sessions held outside of the presence of the members. I mean, they'd already done their job. There's no need for them to be there. He elected to have one of his standby counsel represent him initially through the post-trial process. So the judge informed him of his post-trial rights and asked him who he'd like to have, have represent him. And he indicated one of the three counsel that were originally acting as a standby counsel do that. Ultimately, as trial, as post-trial proceedings progressed, um, he hired a civilian counsel along the way, but then ultimately submitted a letter to the convening authority through the SJA that said he would again like to represent himself and only have the convening authority consider the matters that he himself would put through. Um, the SJA received this letter, made her recommendation up to the convening authority, the, the GCMCA, and recommended that the GCMCA only consider the matters that appellant himself, that Major Hassan himself, submitted. So he submitted, a, like we referenced just a few minutes ago, a 450-page handwritten um, post-trial submission. And that was it. That's what the GCMCA saw when he considered uh, whether or not to take action post-trial. And that waiver was actually in writing. I mean, they include the text of it effectively immediately. I, Nadal Hassan, the accused, am representing myself solely in the matter of the submission of post-trial matters pursuant to rules of court-martial 1105 and 1106. In this capacity, my only submission to the convening authority is a piece entitled Man's Duty to His Creator and the Purpose of Life. Please don't involve any lawyers, for as I have clearly stated above, I am representing myself and understand the consequences. The presiding judge, Colonel Osborne, allow me to represent myself during the trial, so you should not hesitate to do so now in these post-trial matters. And essentially, the SJA and Convening Authority took him at his word. Yeah, it's a pretty unequivocal waiver. I mean, you can't get more firm and steadfast than, than that. And what's the defense's argument about this? So it, it, it's kind of related to issue one and whether or not this was truly a knowing and voluntary waiver. Um, so they argued that the SJA needed to inquire further into whether or not 
Major Hassan knowingly and willfully, excuse me, knowingly and voluntarily waived his right to the representation of counsel um, during the post-trial process. And it's interesting here, the court looked at this in the totality. I mean, it's really important to note that he went through that Feretta inquiry and that he completely understood what self-representation mean. Um, we talked about this in issue one, two episodes ago, how extensive that that colloquy between the judge and the accused is when they try to go pro se. So with that backdrop, they assess, you know, one, he had represented himself previously, two, he understood the risks, and three, he made an unequivocal waiver of his right to counsel here. So viewing that in totality, I mean, there's really no other conclusion to make except that this was knowing and voluntary and that the SJA had no further duty knowing all these things to delve deeper into this issue. Uh, they even reached out to the Civilian Defense Council trying to make sure this, this was a, an actual waiver of those rights. Um, and, and the CAP also goes out to say that the appellant has not pointed to any record evidence or produced any affidavits suggesting that his waiver of the right to counsel during post-trial proceedings was anything other than voluntary knowing intelligence. So they don't really bring anything to the table here. Right. I mean... It, if, if you look at this trial in total, I mean, there's really no other conclusion but that to make. I mean, the calf dispenses of this one, you know, pretty quickly because of that. Fair enough. So I think we'll move to issue number nine. Whether then Colonel Stuart Risch was disqualified from participating in this case as a staff judge advocate. So what are the facts we need to know pertaining to this issue? Yeah, so at the time this happened, so in 2009, Colonel Risch, then Colonel at the time, um, was the SJA in, in, in Major Hassan's case. So he was the SJA at Fort Hood at the time that the shootings occurred. So in, in the facts, they kind of lay out some additional details. So Colonel Risch lived on post with his family. Um, his spouse was home during the time of the shooting. He called, their fam- he called his family to make sure they were okay. He also had members of his OSJ that were present at the time the offenses were occurred. So there was a captain judge advocate and a paralegal that were at the SRP site when the shootings happened. And he checked on his captain and paralegal's well-being afterwards and indicated to them that he had been on scene um, after the shootings occurred to kind of see the scene in person um, after like the police took control of it and after they did evidence collection. So because of that, um, the defense argued for the first time that he should have been disqualified from giving Article 34 advice or participating like in advising the convening authority for referral in any way. I mean, so he gave advice on a variety of matters. They said panel selection, government requests for expert funding, various defense requests, et cetera. I mean, he did what an SJA does in every one of these cases. I mean, none of those are atypical of, 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 of litigation in any form or fashion in the court martial system. And as you said, the defense in, in, in their filings basically argued that Colonel Risch had a personal interest in the outcome of the case um, because the shooting caused him to fear for his family, hence calling home, uh, fear for the safety of a member of his OSJA family, so one of his soldiers in his care. Um, yeah, he, well, they say, quote unquote, personally investigated the scene the night of the attack. Uh, and finally, that he was a part of the Fort Hood community that itself was a victim of the attack. Yes, sir. So what those issues really boiled down to is whether or not the defense's claim here that the SJ acts in a quasi-judicial function when they're rendering Article 34 advice and participating in the pretrial process, whether or not they have to be disinterested um, and whether or, not, whether or not they have to be impartial. And, and the CAF says 
the rules really don't require that. They're not held to the same standard that a military judge is, which is really where that impartial and quasi-judicial language comes from in the defense brief. So what the CAF says is the precedent that they have provides for the disqualification in an SJ in the process. And they talk about three things. So it's when he or she displays a personal interest or feeling in the outcome of a particular case, there's a legitimate factual controversy with defense counsel, or he or she fails to be objective such that it renders the proceedings unfair or creates the appearance of unfairness. That appearance is, is if the defense is going to be able to make hay, it's really where that appearance of unfairness is. But they really can point to nothing in the record that indicates that then Colonel Rich at the time like rendered any decisions that were unfair here. So really, it boils down to prejudice again, like it always does in these opinions. Well, not always, but like it mostly does in these opinions, whether or not they can demonstrate any articulable prejudice. And they can't. I really, they, you look back in the record as the CAF does, and they can't find one, even one decision where they really call into question in his fairness throughout the proceedings. And, they, you know, the appellant's uh, represent, representatives trying to make a allusion to unlawful command influence, um, trying to make some hay out of that. Uh, and the court also goes on to say the SJ's role is to provide legal advice and it'd be the rarest of circumstances uh, where the SJ would be senior in rank to the convening authority. Right. I mean, it, it, and there really is a lot to be said for the facts and circumstances of this case in particular, too. I think they make allusions to it throughout, like what other decision was going to be made here. I mean, you had an offense where 13 people were killed and another 32 are on the charge sheet. I mean, a capital referral is not a given because that's a really important decision. Um, but it was, in their view, at least reasonable for the convening authority to make that decision and didn't appear to be influenced by then Colonel Rich's advice at all. Yeah, they go on to say a lot of the advice he gave was somewhat boilerplate. Right. Like on selecting members, things like that. Again, right. as you said, like most SJs do. They give you the same stuff. Uh, and, and as you said, towards prejudice, they say, nor does appellant identify any other aspect of Colonel Rich's Article 34 pretrial advice as being problematic or evincing bias that improperly influenced his recommendations. Right. So absent some evidence, you're not going to prevail. And, and I mean, this goes back to a few times we said this, and you know, we hate to keep ringing this bell, um, but it's so important when it comes to appellate litigation as a defense counsel. Like, if you have something, make sure it's articulable. Like, make sure they can go back in the record and, and, and glean it from there, because otherwise, you're just never going to get relief for your client. And here, that just wasn't done. And we've kind of buried the lead on this issue, uh, but then Colonel Rich happens to later on become the Judge Advocate General uh, of the Army. Yeah, spoiler alert, his career progressed from there. Um, so, I mean, issue 10 deals with that again. I mean, his, in, his, in his capacity as DJAG and supervising the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. So issue 10 asks, you know, whether the judges of the Army Court of Criminal Appeals should have been recused because they were supervised by then Major General Stuart Risch while his error as the staff judge advocate was pending litigation before them. So this issue in issue 9 was brought up to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. And the question is then whether or not they should be acting as judges in a case where they are, you know, their raider, the person that gives them their evaluation, is the one who is accused to have been committed, who is accused to have committed the error during the trial itself. So they, they, the defense here argues that they should have been disqualified and because of that, that the appellant is entitled to a new hearing before ACCA. You know, just a little bit of background. Um, after acting as a staff judge advocate, you know, fast forward seven years in time and then Colonel Risch is now Major General Risch, the Deputy Judge Advocate General for the Army, supervising ACA, who's it's made up of, you know, eight to ten judges who sit in panels of three. And at this point, 
three of the ACCA judges were assigned to the case. So Chief Judge Berger, Judge Schoschberger, and Judge Hagler. So Major General Risch served as, a, as the raider for Chief Judge Berger and as the raider and senior raider for the other ACCA judges. So we find out that um, the appellant, in, in the course of the proceedings, filed three different motions to disqualify various ACCA judges who presided over appellant's appeal uh, because of Major General, then Major General Risch's rating relationship to them. Right. And during the course of the motions, um, they litigate this in front of the ACCA. Um, they, they take briefs on both sides from it. And then ultimately, ACCA concludes the petitioner, so here Major Hassan, has failed to demonstrate that he cannot obtain relief through alternative means. He may still make an administrative request to remedy the alleged source of bias. And of course, he is entitled to raise this issue in the ordinary course of appellate review. Further, petitioner has failed to demonstrate a clear and indisputable right to the writ as the harm he asserts is entirely speculative at this stage of the proceedings. This is ultimately concluded by Major General Risch being taken out of the rating chain of the judges. So before they hear oral argument and before they render their opinion, he is no longer their raider or senior raider. They elevate it to then Lieutenant General Petey, who was the judge advocate general of the Army at the time. And Lieutenant General Petey said you know, he did not find any conflict of interest. However, however, out of an abundance of caution and to moot any concerns, he then served as the both raider and second raider. So he's the one that, that wrote on them on, on their officer evaluation reports. I'm, I'm learning Army here. We call them fitness reports in the Marine Corps. Uh, but, but another thing, you know, I, I think it goes under, later on, Cap's talking about whether a reasonable person knowing all facts and circumstances could question the judge's impartiality or independence in reviewing appellant's case. And, and we can break some more things, but, but just as an aside, they don't really talk about this in the, in the court's opinion. But to think about this, these, these are Army Court of Criminal Appeals judges. Now, almost all of them have to be 06s. Some of them, you know, under the Army rules, you can get a waiver to be an 05. Uh, but, you know, to say they're fearing for their career uh, as a lowly 05 here, uh, they've kind of made it. You know, making make 06, is, that, that's huge. And being on the appellate court, what an honor. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's that that totality is important because at that point you're right, sir. I mean, they've been promoted to you know one of the highest ranks in the JAG Corps. I mean, there's only five people in the regular JAG Corps that outrank them as an 06. So it, it's it's hard to articulate how there's a real fear there when you look at it from a true perspective as an outside observer. And the reason that becomes an issue is because when you're talking about judge disqualification, the public opinion matters and perception matters. The case that the the CAF cites Liljeburg is all about that public perception. It's the third prong of the Liljeburg analysis is whether what a neutral and un- uninterested observer from the outside, what the public would think essentially of the judge's decision to disqualify him or herself. And in that context matters here. Sure, and we'll just list off the factors I mean, there's three of them. There's the risk of injustice to parties in the case, the risk that denial of relief will resort to, sorry, I mean, result in injustice in other cases, and three, the risk of undermining public confidence in judicial process. And so another thing to think about if you're a member of the public and know all the facts and circumstances, you know, calling out senior leaders is well within the job of appellate judges. You know, that, that, that's one of those things that if they find that somebody did something wrong, that's that's what is expected of them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's especially evident in the Army Court of Criminal Appeals rulings. I mean, they 
list who the SJA is in every case. And a lot of times that SJA has been promoted to one of those one-star positions by the time the case has made it through. I mean, they, they do it on a regular basis and they're, they're taking presumably that fresh look at it at that point. And, and here, kind of going back to the last issue, uh, the CAF points out that the sole assignment of error uh, involving Major General Risch did not challenge the substance of his legal advice. They're not saying, you know, he's bad at his job or, or anything negative about him other than a possible appearance, if you will, uh, that he should have recused himself. So, you know, ruling against uh, well, DJAG at the time um, wouldn't be calling into question anything, wouldn't be making any character calls about him or anything like that. It would just be, well... Again, I don't think it would put them in a bad position. Right. It, they would have had to go against the, the CAF's guidance that we just talked about on whether or not an SJ is disqualified to, to find that he would have been disqualified at that time. So they're just, you know, I think it was Chief Justice Roberts that said, you know, they're just calling balls and strikes at this point using the framework that the higher court um, gave them. So I, the, the CAF ultimately concludes that knowing that, I mean, the public should have no reason to call into question the confidence they have in the, the Army court here. Fair enough. Is there anything else we need to take up with this issue? No, and it's really hard to quantify what these two issues, the last two, like mean for the field because it's really the practice of law at the the higher senior leader level and and, and what they should be doing. It's just about making sure that your cases are bulletproof and building the record as a government counsel and then as defense counsel. If you see something, say something. Yeah, in the end, they mooted the issue by Lieutenant General PD taking him out of the rating chain. Um, Maybe they could have done that earlier. Um, but you know that it's not really a not anything that's going to help uh, the the captains and, and majors out there. Right. Yes, sir. All right. So that takes us to our last issue: whether the convening authority was disqualified to perform the post-trial review of appellant's case after awarding Purple Heart medals to the victims of appellant's offenses. Yeah. So interesting background here. So prior to Major Assange's trial. Um, in 2012, a bill was introduced in Congress that would have authorized the Army to award Purple Heart medals to all of his victims. So the Army opposed its legislation um, because other reasons it believed the bill would undermine the prosecution of Major Hassan by materially and directly compromising his ability to receive a fair trial. And if you think about that, I can see the Army's point here because you're basically calling the victims a victim of some sort of act of war against them before the trial even begins. And if your fundamental objective is to make sure Major Hassan received a fair trial, you're potentially undermining that at that point. So it makes sense that they would oppose the awarding of Purple Hearts at that point. No need to muddy the waters, no no need to add any perceptions uh, of unfairness. So just hold off, essentially. Right. So on April 10, 2015, the convening authority at that point awarded Purple Heart medals to the victims of the Fort Hood attack and made public remarks regarding the victims identifying, he identified their deaths and injuries as sacrifices and construed their actions as courageous, brave, selfless, valorous, and conjecturing that appellant would have inflicted greater calamity given the opportunity. So he he made comments about it after. Remember, 2015 is two years after Major Osama was sentenced to death. And then almost two years later in March, 2017, the convening authority approved the findings and sentence in appellant's case. So same convening authority that awarded the Purple Hearts. So at this point, appellant's arguing that it was improper for him to make that determination to approve the findings and sentence at that point because he awarded the Purple Hearts two years earlier. And and so just because a a number of our newer practitioners have probably come up under the new Article 60, 
uh, just remember this is under the old Article 60 where convening authority had car blanche basically to do whatever they wanted could do almost anything they want yeah they could approve disapprove offenses commute them suspend them sentence in whole or part uh had all these authorities and so that's that's why they're making the case here right because at this point at least post-trial matters were seen as make or break in these type of cases i mean it was seen in the appellate world at least as you were unlikely to get relief in a death penalty case so your best shot may have been to have the convening authority grant some sort of clemency at this point so interestingly for this issue now here in front of the CAF, uh, Major Hassan did not raise this issue to ACCA, did not argue it to ACCA, and did not raise this assignment of error at the lower court. So the first issue that CAF really had to look at was whether or not this was, again, waived or forfeited, as we talk about a lot on this podcast. Seems like every other, every other, if not every third episode. <laughs> right. It is a very big issue in the appellate world, and, and they look at that at first. Ultimately, they conclude that it was forfeited, um, and they apply a plain error standard of review. So because of that, the major Hassan has to show that it was clear or obvious error for the convening authority to exercise or not exercise his authority under Article 60 in granting post-trial relief. And they just say that appellant, like that major Hassan, has not able to meet that burden. Specifically, they he failed to prove that the GCMCA had a personal interest in the case, was biased against Major Hassan, or had an inelastic attitude regarding the exercise of his discretionary post-trial authority. They just, again, were unable to build a record showing that some other action would have been taken but for his awarding the Purple Hearts to the victims of, of the ramp. That's a shooting. Yeah, they go on to give you the language of, in presenting the medals, Lieutenant General McFarland was performing an administrative act in his capacity as commander of three corps and Fort Hood. Although Lieutenant General McFarlane made statements valorizing the victims of the shooting, none of the statements indicated that he had the kind of personal connection with the case or bias that would be disqualified. They went on to say that we perceive an important distinction between a pretrial event, as you stated earlier, the, where future panel members you know, could have been affected, uh, and this post-trial event. Right. It's interesting that though the wrinkle in here too that Major Hassan represented himself during the post-trial process, process. and in his 450-page submission, he didn't really ask for clemency. It was more, uh, you know, writings on why what happened happened. Um, so I think that that weighs into the analysis at all as well, and why it was difficult for Major Hassan to show any bias towards him here, especially when that's what your post-trial submission is constituted of. Without bias, you have no prejudice, and you fail on the issue. That's right. All right. Although that is the last assignment of error, we do still have still have the Grostefan issue. Pardon me, uh, but wait, there's more. Uh, forgot that part. Uh, whether the military judge erred in preventing appellant from presenting a defense of others' defense, and we discussed this uh, a little bit in issue uh, in part one uh, of this calf chat. Yeah. So for the listeners that aren't familiar with the appellate world, so a Grostefan issue is what an appellant can present on their own. So it's not the attorney endorsing that assignment of error in front of the appellate courts. So under United States versus Grostefan, they have a right to additionally brief issues that they believe in. There's a lot of reasons that an attorney may not um, sign it onto an issue and it becomes embedded in the the Grostefan matters. Um, You can't really speculate why. I mean, I've talked to some people that have served in DAD and they've told me, you know, 10 different reasons why something goes into Grostefan. So who knows why it was styled as that here. but it was his right to submit this matter on his own to the court. 
Well, it'd be consistent. I mean, his, his first assigned defense counsel said as a matter of law, this defense did not apply in this case. Uh, and that that's what led us to issue number one, where he subsequently let them go. Right. And so, as you said, sir, like this Grostefan issue almost exactly echoes what he submitted in his defense of others motion to the court at, during the trial. So he argued that because the war um, against Afghanistan was unlawful, that he had a right to defend those that were fighting the war in Afghanistan, defend against those who were fighting the war in Afghanistan. And again, the, the appellate court here looks at it the same way the trial court did, that there's an imminence issue. So the time, they say the time and distance separating Fort Hood from Afghanistan is obvious. So therefore, there were no objectively reasonable grounds to believe that any of Major Assam's victims were about to inflict harm on the members of the Taliban. And that makes the defense of others fail on its face. There you go. Full stop. All right. Well, those are all the issues. Dustin, do we have any other takeaways for the field or fleet? No. I mean, this is a... Very unique case. The CAF only takes up death penalty cases once every five, six years, it seems like. It's been a while since the last one, and hopefully it's a while before the next one. Um, so this this is a unique case, but I think it's important to talk about it um, and kind of shed some light on how this process works. Thank you very much, Dustin. Appreciate all your time and, and patience explaining things to me. Uh, and, and thank you, listeners, for sharing this time with us. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. The court will stand in recess until further order of the court.